0: Welcome to session one of the Apostolic Structure for Revival and Harvest, which is the revelation of the care ministry or home group ministries. This is a very important lesson. It's an introductory lesson, and I'd like to give you some background and history of our uh, local church involvement with uh, the care ministry, what we call the care ministry. My wife and I uh, started Antioch the Apostolic Church uh, on September the 12th, 1970. I was 24, she was 19. We'd both been raised in the church. We would participated in all facets of traditional Pentecostal church services all of our lives. And uh, I'd never pastored before and being raised in a Navy family had never really had a pastor that claimed me. So we came here. Uh, by the direction of the Lord. I'd graduated from the Naval Academy in 1968 and uh, against my personal desires the Lord sent me back here after he allowed me to be medically discharged from uh, or retired from the United States Navy. So we came here and started uh, doing what we knew to do and just had church services and uh, Sunday school and eventually got involved with bus ministry and so a lot of people get saved, get the Holy Ghost, get baptized. And uh, we had uh, significant growth for that particular type method all the way through our first seven, eight, nine years. Uh, in September of 79, we sent out uh, about 30 adults and a pastor to a town about an hour plus south of us to start a church. And at that time, our attendance dropped Uh, with sending those people out to below 200 for the first time in a long time. And we had been uh, struggling in 79. There had been a lot of opposition, spiritually and otherwise. And we were praying and fasting and doing spiritual warfare. And at the end of November of 79, the Lord gave us uh, a uh, dream that he told us. He'd given us dominion over the Prince of Maryland. And... we we immediately, almost immediately began to see an increase in attendance without us doing anything different than we'd been doing. So in uh, the beginning of January 1980, we had uh, on an average Sunday night, we would have approximately 125 men, women, and children, 125. Uh, But something major was happening. Uh, By the time January was over with our Sunday, our building on Sunday morning was, was full. So full, in fact, that if you got to church late, you probably were going to be sat on the platform because there was literally no place else in the building to put you. Uh, we had we were having Sunday school classes in buses with uh, electric cords with heaters run to them on the outside of our building, and uh, that was the only way we could handle the crowds. We had in January and February we had a, about thirty, thirty-five people receive the Holy Ghost in our regular services, and on March the thirteenth of 1980, we began an 11-week revival, didn't know it was going to be 11 weeks, but we began an 11-week revival and had 405 people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, 397 baptized in that 11-week period. For the year of 1980, we ended up having 551 people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, you can imagine, with 125 men, women and children who are committed part of the church, and obviously not all of them were involved in ministry, we, we, our efforts to take care of these people using church services as the main method to take care of these people was extremely challenging. It was a very, very, very challenging. And, uh, uh, but things were going so well and uh, we moved into a different building in February of 81 and we had a seven week revival in the spring and a nine week revival in the fall And between those two revivals and the people that were receiving the Holy Ghost in regular services throughout the year, we had 1,034 receive the Holy Ghost in our building in 1981. That's 1,585 people in two years. Well, that's easily more than 10 times the number of people that we had, men, women, and children, at the beginning of, of January of 1980. 82 was also a very good year. We had several hundred people receive the Holy Ghost in 82, even though we had no revivals. The primary reason we had no scheduled evangelists or revivals in 82 is because we weren't able to hold on to these people. You, there wasn't enough people to contact enough people, call enough people to try to get people to come to church. And we found that even though we were having church four times a week at the time, it was very difficult to establish these people to help build relationships. There was far more new people than there was uh, established people to take care of them. And I became very discouraged uh, about the middle of the year. I actually saw a vision of uh, of sand being poured into my hands and that I, that was all of the sand I could hold and there was so much sand being poured into my hands that most of it was falling through my fingers and falling back to the beach. and and this is what the Lord showed me. And I understood my hands to be the structure that we were using, the methodologies that we were using at the time to try and take care of these people. And it just wasn't working. It wasn't working. And uh, I remember one Monday morning, uh, I, I was depressed, to be honest with you. I was so discouraged. After the highs of all those people receiving the Holy Ghost, and uh, and the discouragement of not being able to take care of them, I uh, I woke up early but was too depressed to get out of bed, and I just laid there in the bed. And uh, uh, the head of the bed had a, a shelf for books, and there was a little small book on the, uh, a, a, it was a biography of John Wesley. And uh, I remember I couldn't go to sleep, so I just pulled that down. I hadn't read it, and I laid there and read the entire book on the life of John Wesley and as I'm laying there reading it discusses uh, the fact he was an Anglican priest and he got uh, he con- said, truly converted in a uh, home group meeting read by, led by the Moravians on Aldersgate Street in London and in that meeting his heart was strangely warmed and then he obviously came under the influence of the Moravian brethren and their structure which they used home meetings as their primary structure and using their uh, their concepts, he actually started, he didn't intend to leave the Anglican church, but with the people that were getting saved under his new message of you needed to have a conversion experience, something needed to specifically happen, you couldn't just join a church. Uh, using that that as his message and people began to respond, he, he started using laymen, trained laymen to lead what he called nurture cells and then he would group the nurture cells together, religious societies and they, they would have meetings on Sundays, et cetera, et cetera. Well the Anglican church was so upset because he was using quote unquote untrained laymen that they actually kicked him out of the Anglican church. But as I studied the methodologies that John Wesley used and realized that the uh, the United Pentecostal Church and Apostolics and Pentecostals in general really found that uh, John Wesley is in our uh, heritage. uh, Then I I began to pray and study uh, what he was doing from a scriptural standpoint and realized that what I thought uh, was church structure, that's having a church schedule where you come to church all the time or or several times a week and you have a format for service and all that then that really, really wasn't exactly how the apostles did that. So I began to pray and study the Scripture intently throughout the end of uh, the last six months of 1982. And by January of 83, I was ready to launch this. I didn't know what to call it. I honestly didn't know anybody else in the world was even doing anything similar to this. Uh, The only input I had outside of the Bible was that one little book by John Wesley that I'd read, about John Wesley that I'd read, and so I went strictly to Scripture. I want to be apostolic, and being apostolic is not just living by apostolic doctrine. It is also following the apostolic, the apostles' methods. And I wanted to see how the apostles did it. I wanted to understand how they did it. So I studied and studied and studied, and of course this was before computers, but I had a Thayer's and a Strong's and a Vines and all those, and I would switch back and forth them and study all these words and write all this stuff down and try to come up with an understanding of what I was supposed to be doing, how I was supposed to be doing it. So I, uh, I came to this revelation, and uh, God gave me the revelation. And I uh, uh, we began to implement it in January of 83 in our local church. And uh, I, I tell you that it was one of the most wonderful things we have ever done in the history of this church. It brought a unity together. It gave us an opportunity and a method whereby we could we could help people build a relationship with not only with God but also with the other people of the church. Uh, it gave us a, a small group setting where we could invite sinners who would be able to uh, some who would not be able to handle walking into a Pentecostal church service the first time. They could get to know people in their homes. And then when they came to church, they already knew people. So when they saw how we were acting, it wasn't so strange or unreal or or difficult for them to uh, accept us and what we were doing as it would have been if they'd walked in cold turkey and didn't know anybody there. So uh, within a year and a half to two years of implementing this structure, this care ministry structure in our local church, uh our care ministry was running in attendance as many people as we were on Sunday mornings. It was a wonderful thing. It was it was awesome. It was answering all the questions that I had. It uh it not only that, it put other people to work in ministry. Up to that point we essentially had a single voice, single pulpit church. It was there was only room for one person to preach, everybody else was spectators, yeah there were people teaching Sunday school there were people involved in bus ministry and uh and we were also we had also started uh the year before in 81 brother cornwell had come and we'd gotten involved in home bible studies and all that was good but but this gave people an opportunity to have real responsibility and real authority and and in taking care of people and nurturing them and uh I began to teach, Uh, I shared this with friends and I was involved with the General Home Missions Division at the time. Shared it with Brother Yance and they were all excited and uh, we began to communicate this. It wasn't very well received, the United Pentecostal Church at that time, but it was still from God. It was from God and it was an amazing, amazing structure. Uh, The first book I ever wrote was entitled, The Missing Half of the Church. And that half of the church that's missing is that ministry of the church outside of the building, off the property, uh, that is really the ministry of the saints. It's it's just basically the ministry of the saints. Whatever structure a local church uses, there has to be some way that they can put the saints to work. Uh, I don't mean this offensively, but the Catholic structure is there's a few... Holy committed people the priests and the nuns and they're the ones that do all the ministry and everybody else shows up just as spectators uh, to Give offerings and provide a crowd and so many Pentecostal churches that I attended as a child and young person. That's exactly the way it was. There was a few people that did everything and Everybody else just came and they gave offerings and they were the crowd they participated in whatever and there was wasn't really any place of ministry for anybody else. Uh yeah, you might have had a youth leader or a ladies leader or a choir director, but uh, those weren't really ministries to the lost. They weren't ministries to the new convert. They were they were departments of the church. And and while there was there's certainly a validity for all of those ministries and others similar to them, it really wasn't a situation that was allowing them or us to To become uh all that we could need to be, so we are strong, strong believers in the 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 need for and the biblical nature of the uh, the care ministry structure. It doesn't really matter to me what you call it. Some call it uh, cell groups, some life groups, some home fellowship groups. It, it's really not important. the The important thing is the principle. The principle of having people involved, uh, not just people that are called to preach, but providing a means whereby the, the people, the saints of the church, can be involved in ministering and helping taking care of babies. I'll be talking about this later in another session, but the, the, the whole concept of, of shepherd and flock, the, the word translated pastor, uh, in one, only one occasion in the entire King James New Testament, The other 22 times is translated shepherd. And we know that shepherds don't produce sheep. Sheep produce sheep. We also know that the ewes who birth those lambs, they're the ones that feed the milk to the babies. And as the Lord showed me these things in Scripture, I realized that there truly was a missing, whole major missing dimension of the church as I had learned it growing up. And that that dimension was the dimension that truly enables a church to be able to take care of a large uh, uh, increase given by God. In fact, over the years, I've had friends of mine ask me the question, uh, why aren't we having results? And I I, I had one good friend call me one day and he said, uh, Brother Wright, our church fasts and prays and we have good worship services. And we've had promise after promise from God. And yet we're not, we're not seeing the results that God's promised. Uh, why? Why aren't we seeing the results? And uh, I said to him, you don't really want to know the answer to that. And he said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. You don't really want to know the answer to that. Well, I called you for the answer. I said, you're not going to like the answer. And he paused and said, well, tell me the answer anyway. I said, okay, I have a question for you. If 50 people got the Holy Ghost this Sunday, how are you going to take care of them? What's your plan in place for taking care of that harvest? Who are the people that are trained waiting to teach Bible studies to them? Who are, what are the ministries that you've created that are waiting for their manpower so that once they become established, they can be plugged right into ministry and they'll have something to do? Who's, who's involved with follow-up? Even, even even, more basic than that, uh, how many greeters do you have? Do you have enough greeters on standby to take care of a large crowd if it comes in the door? How many, how many trained altar workers do you have? Who's going to be involved in the altar to pray those 50 people through? It's one thing to have a promise. It's a completely different thing to prepare to receive the promise. And I ask him, what are you doing? What kind of training do you have going on? What kind of, what kind of what kind of leadership training do you have going on? What, what are you doing to provide for leaders for these people? And what, what, it, what, what do you have in place to, to train these people to become future leaders in your church? It was very quiet on the other end of the line. He said, you're right. I don't, I don't like that answer. Uh, but it, I needed to hear it. And it's true. It's uh, fast and pray, and we think it's work. It's not work at all. It's part of the intimacy of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ the work comes in the demonstration of faith and faith that's not demonstrated is not faith at all the work comes in our demonstration of our faith which is our preparation to receive what we say we're going to, we believe we're going to receive and if we're not preparing our church our ministries our people uh if we don't have a plan in place so that we it, it, so that we know what to do the military calls it wargaming they they go through scenarios and and they 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 talk about all the different things that could happen, and they 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 uh, uh, they come up with plans and, and their responses to different scenarios, and then they work through this and they talk through this and and, and they actually practice what they're going to do if a certain event happened. I don't know what you call it for a church, but do people know what their role is if? Somehow, like on the day of Pentecost, 120 people are praying. Suddenly, they got a crowd of uh, uh, of five, seven, ten thousand people outside their building, and before the day's over, they got three thousand people, three thousand people to take care of in one day. Well, we believe in apostolic revival. We say we believe. We say we believe in apostolic harvest. We say we believe the Bible. But the problem is this: we're, we're, we're preparing. A lot of churches aren't even prepared to take care of one or two. Five or ten would stretch every bit of resources they've got. Not in available people, but in, in, in the preparation that they've done for that eventuality. So how's God going to reach the world when the church isn't even ready to take care of its babies? And of course, in most of our churches, the pastor or the assistant pastor or someone else, they do all the, they do all the discipleship teaching. That's like, that's like a shepherd who confiscates the lambs from the mothers and tries to bottle feed them all instead of letting the teats that God put on the, the mothers feed the babies until they're weaned and ready to eat the grass that the shepherd leads the flock to. But, th- but that's the way we operate. But, so this, this is the idea. This is the reason for this teaching. This is what we're trying to accomplish is to give you a biblical understanding and basics for this structure and, and talk about this. That this is this specific seminar uh, or teaching of these lessons, uh, these sessions, uh, is not specifically intended to train people how to do this. This is the revelation. Because if if you do it simply because somebody else is doing it, if you do it because I've done it or others have done it, other churches have done it, it seems to be working for them. So you say, hey, let's do that because it's working for them. That's not going to accomplish what you would hope it would accomplish. It's not going to accomplish it. So uh, there has to be a revelation. You have to get your own revelation of that this is in the Bible, that this is biblical, that our church needs to be doing this, not because others are doing it, but because it's the will of God for us to do it. You preach baptism because it's in the Bible. You preach people should get the Holy Ghost because it's in the Bible. You preach people should pay the tithes because it's in the Bible. Well, that's the reason why you should do this, because it's in the Bible. And so we will be talking about all this. Let me, let me give you a few scriptures just as a part of this introductory session. In Acts chapter 2, thir- beginning verse 37, and, and every apostolic has heard this and read these scriptures and preached from and taught from them, uh, all of the, practically all of their saved life. But allow me this opportunity. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, said unto Peter to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words that he testified and exhorts, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received the word, his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They continued, And they continued steadfastly, in the apostles, doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common, and so their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and in breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. What what an amazing set of scriptures. It's too bad we seemingly only believe Acts 2.38 out of all those because the rest of it tells us what they did after all those people got the Holy Ghost. Acts 2.42 especially and Acts 2.46, they tell us how the church operated in very basic principle after all those people got saved. Why aren't we studying what they did and trying to adapt what we do to what they did if we want to have a major revival and and do that also? Uh, Notice in verse 46 especially, it tells us specifically that the church had two dimensions of ministry. I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but they had a dimension of ministry that was public. We know the temple belonged to the Jews. And even though all these people were Jews, they were now uh, New Testament believers, but they still met at the temple. Of course, the temple included that outer wall and the out the courtyard, and, and anyone, even Gentiles, could go into that outer courtyard. But But the point I'm making is the public could come and go in that temple area. And so they were in a public setting, having public prayer and public worship services that anyone could come participate in. But that's not all they did. They also daily had activities from house to house of the people that were a part of the church. Now, of course, their houses were set up a little bit different than ours. Most of them had some kind of enclosed inner courtyard. The buildings were kind of built in a rectangle with an open area in the middle. And, it, and they, they would meet in these areas, and, 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 but it was private. It's not that people couldn't come. But you didn't go into someone's house unless you were invited. So they, they had these kind of dimensions. And it was in that situation. The scripture says they broke bread. Well, what does that really mean? We find in Acts 2.42 there's really two aspects or four aspects or four types of basic types of things that the church all considered important to do. And they obviously got all of this from Jesus because they wouldn't have been doing what something that Jesus didn't teach them. So... I believe verse 42 boils down or 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 brings to a sediment uh of what's left over a summarization of of what what they believe that Jesus taught them in Matthew Mark Luke and John on how to have a spiritual body a spiritual fellowship and how to grow themselves and how to help other people uh be saved and grow and those four things are first of all uh, that, they would, that they would continue in the apostles' uh, doctrine. Now, commentators and Greek scholars seem to be kind of divided over what this means. Some say that it literally means, uh, since there, were no, there was no written New Testament, uh, it basically means they just continued to attend sessions where the apostles were teaching. Well, I'm sure that's, that's exactly the case in that context. Uh, that they did, they were faithful to attend to, to listen to the apostles' teaching, because the church, of course, as Paul later tells us, was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, not upon their bones, not upon their human lives, but upon what the prophets prophesied and what the apostles taught. Uh, but, but there's more to it than that, obviously. Uh, other commentators and and Greek scholars say that what it actually means is that they continued to be faithful to what the apostles taught. Well, Jesus in John 17 said that he didn't just pray for them, meaning the 12 apostles. This was right before his crucifixion. It meant also that he was going to pray for them, or he did pray for them, who would believe on him through their word. So uh, they were faithful in adhering to what the apostles taught. They continued steadfastly not only in attendance to the sessions where the apostles were teaching, but they also were faithful in, attend, in, in, in being faithful to and obedient to what the apostles actually taught them. And of course, where did the apostles get this? They they were simply teaching them what Jesus taught them, because he said Matthew 28, twenty eight uh, twenty, or twenty eight nineteen, go into all the world uh, uh, and teach all nations. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So they were the apostles passed on to us, and we're passing on to them what uh, what Jesus had given them, and uh, and so this is very important. This is the foundation. This is the foundation. The second thing, though, this is a little different. It says. Uh, this, this, this word fellowship is a Greek word is translated uh, not only fellowship, but communion. Uh, it, the, the early church carefully continued to fellowship with one another spiritually. They not only participated in the Lord's Supper, but they joined together regularly for spiritual fellowship. This word also connotes that they looked out for one another spiritually. But, but as I studied this afresh even recently, I, again, the commentators and the Greek scholars were divided on what it meant, but but it was the the, the word fellowship here or communion is actually the Greek word kornoia, and it originally was used as uh, in in Greek marriage contracts to to describe the agreement between two people to jointly participate in the necessities of life, and and the Holy Ghost coined this word out of that legal. Context and used it to describe this spiritual bonding, this spiritual fellowship took place. Well, I believe that the only place this kind of fellowship, this kind of bonding can take place in a spiritual dimension to this degree is in some kind of church service or worship service. This is a really critical point. I believe that this part of the verse that continues steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, I believe this. Is a connotation or even denotes that they were faithful to attend whatever sessions of a church service type sessions. And apparently, they were having church every day. I realized some people had to work on occasion, but people got to as many different church type services as they could. Now, I'm not saying that their church services recommended in, or, or re- resembled in format what ours did, but it was some kind of public. Work service, church service where they could all come together. And they did come together. Uh, but there's something that happens when people come together. Uh, Jesus said where two or three of you get together in my name, there I'll be in the midst. So there's something about us joining together in, in, in spiritual fellowship. And uh, and John said in 1 John chapter 1, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. One with another and the blood of Jesus Christ... It, Jesus Christ, his son, uh, cleanses us from all sin. This cleansing happens when the body is together and, and, and is fellowshipping with one another. And the word there is uh, konoia, fellowship or communion. It is a spiritual bonding. It's where we come, become knit together, where the members of the body join together as one and, and, and by, by the power of the Spirit of God, because it is the Spirit of God that joins all these individual human beings together when we come together and makes us the body of Christ. It's not just a religious service that we attend. It's not just coming together and, and showing up to prove that we're still around and and worship, singing a little bit and feeling good and listen to a preacher preach, give an offering or what, or pray a little bit. That's not what it's about. Church is what we call church or services or as the Bible in Acts 2.42 called it, fellowship or communion which is more than the lord's supper in this case it, it it's a bonding it's a bonding time that's absolutely essential and cannot be experienced alone now i could cut my finger off and put, put it in a jar of formaldehyde and set it on a, a shelf in my house and every time i walk back and they say well there's my finger yes that is my finger but it's not connected to my body and the only way it can be alive is to be connected there has to be a connection of member to member, and so that, uh, and, and therefore, all the members to the body for there to be life. Life does not exist outside the body. Why? Because the Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's uh, Leviticus seventeen eleven. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and the blood is in the body. Now, the only way the blood is in the individual members of the body is as the members of the body are connected to the body. Any part of my body, any part of my body for it to receive blood has to be connected to the body. This is koinonia. So coming together and just going through some ritual church service and some performance of singing and performance of of music and and somebody getting up and giving an oratorical speech uh, even if the sign out front says Pentecostal or Apostolic, that's not koinonia. But there is a spiritual bonding when the Spirit of God is given priority in our services. There's something that takes place in the Spirit that we cannot get on our own at home or other places. That's why the uh, the uh, the early church was faithful to their uh, to the fellowship, to coming together and fellowshipping. Now, the next word is also very, very important because it says they were. They also continued in breaking bread, uh, and in verse 46 adds, from house to house. This means that they spent time together, not just in a totally, totally spiritual environment. They spent time together, and this happened from house to house. The fellowship took place, for the most part, the second part, the fellowship, took place for the most part in public gatherings. Now, obviously, there there should be, and I'm sure there was, a spiritual dimension at some point in this breaking of bread from house to house. I'm sure there was some spiritual element with that. But when you study food throughout the book of New uh, 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 throughout the New Testament, and you see how often Food was connected with fellowship. Food. Now, if you uh, if you study what we call the Last Supper, you'll realize that that uh, uh, sharing that bread and and sharing that uh, what the King James says is wine or grape juice, that was not the only thing they were doing in that gathering. They were eating a meal together. They didn't just have what we call communion. The the 12 apostles and Jesus were literally eating a meal together. How do we know that? Because when uh, when Jesus said, one of them is going to betray me, and uh, and they wanted to know who it was, uh, John asked Jesus, "Who, who is it, Lord? And he said, it's the one who dips the sop with me. Well, that was a part of a meal. They would have a, a kind of like a bowl of gravy with some kind of meat in it or whatever, and they would take bread and form it into kind of a, in their hands, kind of a little uh, ball with a depression in it, and they would dip down into that gravy, and 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 then they would have some bread and and, and the gravy, and they'd get a piece of meat and all that. And they that's called dipping the sop. They were eating a meal. That wasn't the the that wasn't communion. So here they were. That's what the Lord and His disciples were doing, and throughout the Scripture, there's something about sharing food with somebody that it's just a. It, it has a bonding effect to this. That has a bonding effect, and, uh, and 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 this this is so missing in the average church, especially and including the average Pentecostal slash Apostolic church. This really isn't there. It really isn't it's not really there we don't really, you know and this this is not the same thing as going out to a restaurant after church on sunday night or after church on thursday night that's not the same thing this is a time where you get together and you share a meal together in an atmosphere where there is both some spiritual time and and some natural time that there, there has to, jesus said or through jesus said it through the apostle john that if if i can't love my brother whom i have seen How can I love God that I haven't seen? Now, I'll be saying this again in a later session, but I want to share this now because it's not enough for a person to build a vertical relationship between them and God. The scripture teaches there has to be a horizontal relationship built. You can't build that horizontal relationship person to person in church services. It's not possible. That's not how church services are set up. That's not how they operate. That's not the, that's not their purpose. So when it, when is this horizontal bonding going to take place? When when are, when are we going to build these relationships? When are we going to become uh, 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 brothers truly brothers and sisters? How are we going to become family where we look out for each other? We feel responsibility for each other. Where we get to know each other. Where we can learn to. To, to to forgive and be forgiven. Where are we going to do that? You don't you don't encounter that in a church service. It's rare that something happens in a church service where one person gets offended with another person. Well, people may get offended with a preacher. <laughs> Sometimes a preacher may get offended with the people in a church service, but that's not the same that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the relationship between the people. Where 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 where's the atmosphere where they're taught to to learn to be to, as Paul said, to bear with one another, to to be patient with one another, to be long-suffering with one another, to love one another, to treat other people like you want to be treated. Where does that happen? Where does that happen? uh, With the average church, almost the whole church schedule on a weekly basis centers around that facility, the church facility, whatever it is. It's all centered around that facility the prayer meetings are all there uh, the 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 meetings are all there the 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 the, the different ministries are all there the choir practice everything is around that facility but that's not the way the early church operated it's not how they operated they had a they had a public service uh exposure to to the world but they also had private times together in various homes where and i'm sure the apostles and other senior leaders would would participate in those, but there were 3,000 people. They didn't have PAs and microphones. How in the world did they have a service where everybody was taught by by one person at the same time? So from the very beginning of the church, what we do was almost made obsolete from the beginning because they didn't even have a facility. They didn't have a facility of their own, and they didn't even have the equipment to be able to do what we do. So are we apostolic or not? Again, I'm not teaching or preaching against having public worship services, but is our structure and our concept, the way we're doing it, is that that the very th- because that's all we're doing, is that the very thing that's limiting our growth? Is that is that limiting what we can become? I mean, you can only put so many people in a building until you either have to expand or relocate. That takes time and money. Not everybody has time and money to do that. And what if you have a what if you had a day of Pentecost revival? Maybe you didn't have 3,000 3, one day. What if you had 300 one day? What if you had 50 in one day? And, and all of their family members came. Would, would your church hold that? What are you going to do then? What are you going to go to double church services, triple church services? Yeah, that's what some do. But that's only, that's, that's, that's only a, 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 a crutch. That's, that doesn't fix the problem. Because the problem is our approach. It's our structure. It's not the way the apostles did it. And again... I'm not speaking against the public part. I'm talking about the lack of the private part, the lack of ministry and homes. And so, scholars and uh, various scholars, and uh, uh, both commentators and Greek scholars, in discussing this breaking of bread, they all said that it's literally talking about these these times they got together. Paul called them love feasts. He called them love feasts. Okay. So it was not just communion, but it was time where they got together and loved one another. They'd share a meal. We'd call them potluck. Uh, or, you know, everybody brings a dish and covered dish where we all would eat together. They did it in homes. They didn't do it in the church fellowship hall. They did it in various homes around the area. and They got together, and they'd talk about their day and whatever. And then there'd be, I'm sure there was some singing, and then there would be some uh, teaching, and they, I'm sure they would pray for one another and whatever this is the basic idea of what this is all about. Was there communion connected with this? Most scholars agreed that many many times there there probably was some celebration of the Lord's or the Last Supper or the communion, but it was only a part of this particular point. It wasn't all of this particular point. So this is very critical. This is very critical. And then, of course, number four is they continued steadfastly in prayers. This context implies that they did more than just pray their own personal, private devotional prayers, but they also continue to pray together. This particular, uh, both the commentators and the Greek scholars say, this particular inclusion of prayer in this verse, Acts 2:42, wasn't talking about devotional prayer that all of us should do. This is also talking about uh, them coming together. Again, Jesus said, If any two of you can agree on earth as touching anything, you'll have it as my Father, which is in heaven. You'll hear this again later in in another session, but let me just share it again, share it with you right here, right now. Uh, All of us, whether male or female, individually, we are sons of God, children of God, sons of God, male or female. Individually, we're all sons of God. But collectively, when two or three of us get together, collectively, we are the bride of Christ. So we completely change our direct our relationship with the Lord when two or three at least two or three of us get together and pray in fellowship together. We come, we, we do that. I, I don't mean to be crude here, but intimacy between a father and a son is a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. And we don't we it, it, everything in the scripture is against that. The law is against that. That's that's not you don't expect desire or participate intimacy between a father and a son you don't do that but intimacy between a husband and wife is not only expected you can't have a relationship without it so if you want true intimacy with the Lord intimacy you can't have that except when the body comes together so the influence in prayer changes when two or more of us is together because if I'm praying alone I'm a son asking, will the father give son stuff? Yes. Look what the father did to even to the prodigal. Before he left home, he said, give me half what I've got. The father answered that prayer. After he blew all that and came home, look what the father did for his son. Does the father love his children? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And 1 John 3, 1 tells us what, what a great privilege it is and how much of a demonstration it is of the love of the father to call us his sons. But the But the bottom line is this. There's a different degree of influence biblically when we pray as a group together than there is when we pray by ourselves. Uh, I think any home where children have more influence with the father than the wife is a dysfunctional home. The wife should always have more influence with the father, the husband, than the children should. This should always be the case. And so there is no question that, that when we come together to fellowship, when we come together to pray, that we have an opportunity for intimacy and for influence with the Father that we, we have no other time. We have no other time. And so this is a very important thing. Now, in summarizing this this lesson or this session, uh, just let me say this. It, we, 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 we look at these four things. They continued steadfastly apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. We, we, we look at these things. We look at these things. But many apostles today, apostolics today, excuse me, we stop with the, the first and the last. We stop with these two. We don't really consider what these two mean and how to accomplish them. These don't happen by osmosis. Fellowship and breaking of bread, these two things don't happen by accident. They have to be planned. They have to be prepared for. There has to be a structure that facilitates these things. When when you have people that have never built a horizontal relationship with the people they go to church with, and they become spiritual, these people will eventually cause you trouble. A tall building with a small foundation is unstable. People that have a great relationship with God but have no real relationship with the people of the church, they will end up causing you significant trouble because they're critical, they're not forgiving, they think everybody should be like them. They'll eventually, they almost always will eventually believe that they're even more spiritual than the pastor that person will cause you trouble. There has to be a stability. There has to be this opportunity to learn to forgive and be forgiven. There has to be this opportunity to understand that this vertical relationship should be an expression of, Jesus said, "By, by this shall all men know that you're my disciple, that you have loved one for another. Where does this get built? It doesn't get built in church services. No matter how much you pray together in a church service, there's no time to get to know people. If you've got any size church at all, there are people that attend your church on Sunday and eat, Sunday morning or even, even your second most attended service that don't even know the names of other people in the building that they come to church to regularly. Is there something wrong with them for that? No. It's that you, church services aren't designed to, be, to get to know people like that. They're not designed like that. So something has to be done. However you do it, whatever you do it, something has to be done. But in this seminar, or these presentation of these sessions on this subject, we're going to talk about biblically what I believe is a revelation of the way the apostles actually accomplished this. And I think that's very, very important for us that want to be apostolic. If we're going to be apostolic, and we're going to have apostolic revival and harvest, then we're going to have to do everything we can to provide for a structure and an understanding uh, for each one of these four things. I believe these four things are essential for any individual to endure to the end. In my 44 years of ministry, I will tell you right now, when. When anyone starts neglecting any one of these four things, they automatically are, start struggle. When they When they just start struggling with two of them, when they're missing two of them, their spiritual instability becomes apparent. By the time they get to where they're neglecting three of them, they're still coming to hear the preacher preach. But they're neglecting these other three, They're on their way out the door. It's only a matter of time. And yet, here's the problem. In my upbringing, and with many of the places that I have had the opportunity to go preach, two of these are missing as a matter of course. They're just, they're missing because they're just not provided for. So I know this is strong, I know this has been very pointed. I hope that you will receive this in the spirit which has been said. But the point is, I beg of you, pastor, minister, leader, saint, I beg of you to go back to the scripture for yourself. Study the scriptures that are going to be shared in this seminar. Study them for yourself. And see if the Bible's not talking about these things. And ask yourself, what are we doing? And how is our church and our spiritual body how how's our body participating in these four and, and, and how as leaders, how are we providing means to facilitate these four things in our body? How are we doing that? If you truly want to have revival and you want to have harvest, and they're not the same thing, if you want to have revival and harvest, and you want your fruit to remain, you've got to prepare for it in advance. The scripture says faith without works is dead. Say all you want, that you believe God's going to give you a harvest. But if you're not preparing for the harvest, do you really believe that God's going to give you one? In the next session, we're going to be talking about the revelation of the apostolic structure. In that that session, we're going to be talking, I'm going to be showing you in Scripture both how the early church, the principles that the early, early church followed, and also how the early church. Uh, applied those principles in order to accomplish those four things to help the church continue steadfastly apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in uh, prayers together. This is a very important session because, again, it lays a biblical foundation for the method. Any, any application of a principle, which we call a method, that is not first and foremost built upon a personal revelation is not, it's not going to be successful in your local church. So I encourage you to uh, to watch this uh, next session, session two, so that you can see for yourself in Scripture uh, exactly the principles that the early church used to accomplish the things we've talked about in this session. God bless you.